Today's scripture reading is found in Psalm 73, verses 1 through 28. You can find that in your bulletin, and I believe you may read it on the screen behind me as well. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you, Allison, for reading that long psalm. I grew up in a Christian bubble. And the only reason I know that is because at a crucial point in my life, that bubble popped. Up until eighth grade, most of my waking hours were spent in Christian settings, doing Christian things with Christian people. Monday through Friday, I was in Christian school. Sunday morning, I was in church. And although I pouted about this a lot as a kid, after church, I was in Sunday school. 
From childhood, I was taught to understand all things, myself and the world, in relationship to God, our Creator and our Redeemer. Deep down inside of me, hammered home by countless hours of Christian teaching, was the conviction that life could not be lived apart from God. And most everyone I knew agreed with that. And it all made sense to me until I went to high school. I was dazed and confused in high school. I was like a spiritual Spicoli, if you get that reference. High school was the first time I interacted with people who either openly disbelieved in Christianity or openly disregarded it. Teachers would question the Bible in class. Friends would debate me about the very existence of God with pretty convincing arguments, I might add. I was so dazed and confused that at one point I shouted to a very intelligent atheist, why can't you stop thinking and just believe? That was my first altar call. The intellectual doubts of my friends were very disorienting. I began to wonder if the faith I was raised in was a sham. But that's not what disoriented me the most. What disoriented me the most was not my friends' arguments, but their attitude towards life. A lot of my friends believed something was out there, something divine. They just didn't care. The presence or absence of God was irrelevant to them. My friends wanted what they wanted, and they did whatever they wanted. They did all kinds of things I was taught not to do, and they had a lot of fun doing them. They lived life on their terms according to their desires, and I was captivated. I began to desire the kind of life I was taught not to desire, a life lived apart from God. I wanted to be just like them. My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, Asaph tells us in Psalm 73. This morning, we are invited to sit at the feet of Asaph as he tells us a story, a story of wandering and homecoming, of crisis and communion. Asaph, the author of this psalm, Psalm 73, was one of the worship leaders in the Jerusalem temple. He was a holy man, devoted to the Lord. But that's not the story Asaph wants to tell us today. Asaph wants to tell us about a time he nearly lost his way. He wants to tell us about a time when he seriously asked himself if he would be happier living without God at the center of his life. He wants to tell us about a crisis of desire and perspective, and he wants to tell us about what saved him from utter ruin. And although I'm not sure where each of you are coming from this morning, I can confidently tell you that Asaph's story is one we need to hear. Either you have tried to live without God at the center of your life, you are doing so now, or you will feel tempted to do so in the future. Either you have wondered if a life of devotion to God is all that great, you are wondering that now, or you will wonder it in the future. Our hearts are restless, and we are not easily convinced that God is as good as he says he is. But knowing this about us, God gives us Psalm 73. He gives us Asaph's story. And Asaph has hard things to say about us as, as people, as humans. 
but he speaks in a gracious tone. As a travel companion who knows what life is like off the beaten path. And Asaph speaks to us this way because though he sought to abandon God, he encountered a God who refused to abandon him. So in our passage, we're going to see three things that constitute the movement of the psalm. This psalm moves from crisis to clarity to communion. So we're going to look at that first point, crisis. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 1 is a thesis statement. It's the thesis statement of this psalm, the very thing Asaph will question. It's the thesis statement of the entire book of Psalms, starting in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. And it just happens to be the original thesis statement of the nation of Israel. Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, says that if Israel attends to God's law and is faithful to his covenant, God will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But what does that mean? What does it mean for God to be good to those who are pure in heart, good to Israel? It means that for God's people, the way of happiness is the way of holiness. The path to flourishing is the path of covenant faithfulness in which we delight in God's gracious works and seek to obey his gracious will. This is not a form of works righteousness. God did not save Israel based on their good works. No, God freely redeemed Israel from slavery. And having freely redeemed Israel from slavery, God graciously and freely re revealed his good design for human life on earth. The more Israel loved God, Above all things, the holier they would be. And the holier they would be, the more human they would be as well. The Bible has a word to capture this unity of holiness and happiness, shalom. With verse 1, Asaph tells us something that would have gone without saying for any respectable Jew. Like if a scientist called a press conference today to tell us that, yes, the earth does in fact rotate around the sun. But in verses 2 and 3, Asaph, one of the temple worship directors, speaks the unspeakable. What if shalom has nothing to do with God? This is what he's saying to us. It may be true that God has said the way of true happiness is the way of holiness. But let me tell you, I was not always convinced. I saw how those who disregard God's works and ways lived. And instead of suffering and misery, they were happy they were prosperous. They had everything I could ever want in life. They didn't have God, but they had shalom, and I was jealous. In effect, Asaph is expressing to us a crisis of experience. His eyes reveal to him a different world than the world described by the Bible. Verse one may be a nice sentiment, Asaph says, but look around. 
Open your eyes. Happiness and holiness have nothing to do with each other. Piety gets you nowhere in this world. Look, look at verses 13 and 14. It brings neither lasting satisfaction nor lasting security. There is always more sin to kill in yourself, and no matter how virtuous you are, God still allows bad things to happen to you. Life, according to God, is vanity, Asaph says in verse 13. A life devoted to God and faithful to his covenant doesn't work. But you know what does work? A life devoted to self. Just look at the wicked. They have a sleekness about them, a carefreeness. They seem invulnerable to the world's imperfections. See verses four and five. Their hair doesn't gray, their checks don't bounce, and people do what they say. The wicked live as if they themselves are the supreme authority on earth. See verses six and 12. This is their world. Thus they say what they want, think what they want, and do whatever they want. They colonize heaven and earth, thinking creation, other human beings, and even God himself are their own private commodities to be controlled and manipulated. They pursue the world's goods on their terms. And that's what it means to be wicked for Asaph. To be wicked is not, does not mean to be a moral monster. As Asaph understands it, to be wicked is to live as if the human self is the ultimate reality and the ultimate priority. You know, in 1936, Edward VIII was crowned King of England. But there was a slight problem. He had, he had fallen in love with an American woman who had been twice divorced already, which was quite a scandal for the royal family and for the Church of England. So, in 1936, the same year he was crowned, he decided to give up his throne and marry Wallace Simpson. And all of England was scandalized by that choice. If that was scandalous, imagine with me the scandal of Psalm 73. One of Israel's worship leaders felt drawn to a life of self-worship. The man in charge of leading others into the presence of God seriously questioned if God was all that great to begin with. Surely this is scandalous, but it's something else as well. 1 John chapter 1 says this, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Asaph is not simply telling his truth to us. His story, his crisis, is a gracious invitation to us. It's an invitation for us to come out of the darkness and step into the light. It's an invitation to walk in spiritual honesty. Because let's be honest, life with God does not always feel satisfying or secure. Sometimes other things just seem like better gods than God. Sometimes there doesn't seem to be any payoff to being a Christian. We're supposed to be walking with the one true God in control of all things, but oftentimes our lives feel as futile as trying to catch wind. Plus, 
We happen to live in a highly pluralistic society where there are a vast array of competing spiritual options and possibilities for us. If Asaph questioned the value of God and his covenant, do you think you never will? Asaph in these verses names his sin. In the presence of God and all Israel, Asaph calls his crisis what it was, sinful, a crisis of envy. Now, sin does not want to be named, but if sin does not want to be named, it's also true that sin does not want to remain private. If left unnamed, secret admiration for those who live for themselves will become public affiliation. Secret admiration will become public affiliation. After all, we become what we behold. Our feet follow our eyes. If we gaze with longing on those who live for themselves and for other gods, our feet may stray from the path and follow after them. Just read the story of Solomon if you want proof of this. And Asaph was alive during Solomon's reign. Solomon was the wisest king in Israel who died an idolatrous fool. When we feel as Asaph once felt, when we question why life has to be lived for God, when we find ourselves resentful of those who live for their own happiness, then we ought to be honest. We ought to tell God, others, and ourselves what is happening. Because the best way to ensure sin does not master us is to name it before God and others. But what enabled Asaph to name his sin for what it was? What helped him to see what was happening to him? What brought him out of his crisis? And what can bring us out of ours? Let's look at our next point. We've moved from crisis now to clarity. Look with me at verses 16 through 20. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. A mentor of mine likes to ask the question, what frames what? What frames what? What is framing the way I think and exist in this moment? Well, up until this point, Asaph's perspective has been framed by his experience. He judges the worth of God's covenant based off of what he can see. His crisis stems from seeing the wicked prosper. But in these verses, he has a eureka moment. He ceases to judge God based on the world and begins to judge the world based on God and God's works. And it's very telling where Asaph has his eureka moment, in the temple sanctuary. The temple meant many things for Israel. It was the place where God placed his name to be accessed by Israel in prayer and praise. It was the place of God's royal dwelling on earth. And it was the place that symbolized his purpose for creation, to make the entire earth his temple sanctuary, 
filled with his glory. It's unclear what about the sanctuary of God brought Asaph out of his crisis, but the point is this. Reality comes into focus when all things are viewed in relation to God. Reality comes into focus when all things are viewed in relation to God. All of the sudden, the spell that has enchanted Asaph is lifted. In the sanctuary, he comes back to his senses because he realizes that in the grand scheme of things, sin is utterly pointless. The life devoted to self may seem satisfying and secure, but only when we forget that this is God's world and that God rules in his sanctuary. In the light of God's ultimate purposes for us and his creation, the self-glorying life is an attempt at building sandcastles in a tsunami. And in verses 19 and 20, we see that those who seem so important and powerful now will one day be as unreal and forgettable as a dream. Think about that. I dream pretty much every night, and they're largely incoherent. But within five minutes of being awake, I cannot tell you what I dreamt about. That's how momentary and insignificant the self-focused life is to God. Sin is nothing to him. Asaph's moment of clarity is an essential lesson for us today. Sociologists and philosophers refer to our day as a secular age. And secular does not just mean an age of unbelief and irreligion. Western Europe and America, very secular, are still highly spiritual, especially America. To live in a secular age is not necessarily to be an atheist. No, it more so means that you understand your life in purely earthly and human terms. Your life lacks a transcendent dimension. Your life lacks contact with a being or reality that lies beyond this world. That's what transcendent means. You cannot even imagine a higher reality than our own. And your highest aspirations are to achieve something this worldly, like romantic fulfillment, career success, or self-realization. As Christians, we may be tempted to think that all of that secular stuff is out there in that crazy messed up world of ours. But if you think that, you should think again. Our culture is more subtle than we give it credit for because culture is not just an idea but a collection of practices and symbols that work on our imagination. If you shop with Amazon and if you watch Netflix, you are being shaped by our secular age. You are being shaped to believe that the goods of this world are ultimate and that you should have them on your terms. I don't mean to frighten you or imply that we can't use Amazon or Netflix, that we can't live in this world. But what I do mean to imply is this. No matter how much our culture says so, and no matter how much effort it expends in enchanting us with this life, this world is not ultimate. The desires and thoughts of the human self are not ultimate. But this secular spell takes conscious effort to resist. In fact, it can only be broken in the light of who God is and what he has done. 
And there's a great scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, which I believe is the sixth Narnia book, that illustrates my point. The main characters in The Silver Chair, Jill and Puddleglum, it's a children's story, so you have to run with it, are trapped in a witch's castle underneath the earth. The witch wants to keep them in her castle forever, so she tries to cast a spell on them. She throws a green powder on the fire to dull their senses, and she, she tries to convince them that there is nothing outside of her castle or above the earth. No sun, no overland, as the characters call it, no Narnia, no Aslan, the Jesus figure. Jill and Puddleglum have a, a dim sense that the witch is wrong, but the spell prevents them from remembering things very clearly. There never was any world but mine, said the witch. There never was any world but yours, said they. And that goes on for a while. Jill and Puddleglum try to debate the witch and tell her that the sun is real. Narnia and Aslan are real, even if they can't see those things now. But the witch persuades them that those things aren't real. They're just dreams. They're just projections of childlike desires. Until Puddleglum does something very brave. He walks over to the fire and he stamps it out. And the spell no longer in the air, he gains a precious moment of clarity. And he says to the witch, suppose this black pit of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game if you're right. But babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can even if there isn't any Narnia. The witch wanted her world to be the ultimate one. But Puddleglum knew better, so he broke through her spell. Our culture may want to enchant our imaginations too, so that we mindlessly chant, there never was any world but yours. But we too can break through this spell. In fact, if you believe it, we're in a much better position than Puddleglum to do so. Why? We can break through the secular spell because God himself has broken through into our world to remind us that this world is not ours, nor is it ultimate. God sent his son, born of a woman, to be the better temple sanctuary for us. In Christ, all the fullness of God dwells bodily, not in a place, but in a person. And in him, we have a freer and fuller access to the grace and power of God than Asaph did in the sanctuary. In his life, his death, and his resurrection, Jesus judged sin and sin's claims on this world. And because he lived sinlessly, bore God's judgment for our sin in our place, and now is enthroned at the right hand of the Father in endless glory. Sin and the wicked no longer get to frame life on their terms. The sinful life of self-worship does not have the last word in this world. Jesus does. And in Jesus, God has summed up his eternal purposes for all things and all peoples to fill all things with himself and to make all peoples like himself. In Jesus, God has exposed 
the sinful life of self-worship for what it is, utterly fragile, unsatisfying, pointless. That life comes to absolutely nothing in the end. In Jesus, God has reminded us that when we aspire to be gods, we are monsters. But when we are creatures in loving relation to him, we are human. In Jesus, who he is and what he has done, we receive clarity. The clarity about self and world that we in Asaph so desperately needed. But in Jesus, we receive something else as well. We don't just receive spiritual clarity, although thank God we do. We receive fulfillment, the fulfillment of desire, union and communion with God. So we should look at our third point. We've moved from crisis to clarity, now to communion. Look with me at verses 23 through 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. At the end of his journey, Asaph is grateful. He's been like a child who pulls away from his parents in a crowded street because he sees a shiny toy in the shop window. He has been ruled by his disordered appetites. He's wanted shalom without God, and it's driven him mad. Look at verses 21 and 22 for that. But here at the end, Asaph is grateful that God did not listen to him. The greatest gift God gave to Asaph is refusing to let Asaph have his way. Because if Asaph had his way, he would have perished in misery. That's the image of the famous verses of 23 and 24. I am continually with you. God is ever present with Asaph. Asaph has been grasped by God. He is guided by him perpetually, and he will be glorified by him in the future. Grasped, guided, and glorified. Like the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8, every temporal dimension of Asaph's life, past, present, and future, has been filled with God's loving presence. Asaph may have filed the divorce papers, but God did not sign them. God, Asaph says, is the strength of my heart. The Hebrew word meaning something more like rock. Though my desires may be chaotic, Though I may be prone to wander, God's commitment to my flourishing is as immovable as a rock. God's commitment to Asaph runs deeper than Asaph himself. And for this, Asaph is grateful. He realizes that in wanting to pursue finite goods, he lost touch with the infinite good that God is. He realizes that to commune with this God is the very purpose of his life and his being. In having God and being had by him, Asaph has everything. And if you'll permit me another C.S. Lewis quote, Asaph has learned what, what Lewis once said. 
He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. And so, like any good journey, Asaph ends where he began, but a profoundly different person than when he set out. But as for me, he says, echoing verse two, it is good to be near God. He's surveyed life and its possibilities. He's considered life outside of a relationship to God, and he ends with the very God he sought to abandon, but he refused to abandon him. For a couple of years in high school, I pretended like I hadn't been raised in the church. With my friends, I lived to please and fulfill myself, no matter how dark the pleasure or immoral the fulfillment. But I was miserable. I felt lost, and I had deep spiritual questions. My mom was tired of hearing me question Christianity, so she arranged for me to talk with my pastor. And that pastor encouraged me to read a book by Tim Keller, who went to be with the Lord this year. That book was called Reason for God, and it changed my life, if only because that book introduced me to Tim Keller and his ministry. So one day, as I was doing yard work, and I was listening to a Keller sermon, the gospel came home to me. I had sought life in dead things when I ought to have sought life in the living God, but rather than punish or condemn me, Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. And I realized that though I had dismissed and belittled God, he did not do the same for me. Instead, he loved me and he gave himself for me. We all have some Asaph in us, don't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, the God I love, goes the song. But that is not where Asaph's song ends. Asaph ends his song safe and satisfied, eternally safe in God's love for him and limitlessly satisfied by it. Brothers and sisters, we have Asaph's heart, sure, but even better, we have Asaph's God, the God who was always with Asaph, forever unites us to himself by faith in Jesus. In Christ, God's love and commitment to you runs deeper than you will ever know. It runs deeper than you yourself. His commitment to you is an impenetrable bond, a steel cord that you cannot trouble, not with your failure, not with your self-hatred, not even with your wandering. He will not flinch when you slap him. He will not let go of your hand when you pull away. When we feel distant from him or cold towards him, that does not change our union with him. And though we are often not good to God, he does not reply in kind. In Christ, he will always be eternally for us, never against us. And in Christ, we gain intimate access to the inexhaustibly perfect God. The fount of joy itself is our God, our portion, and we are his delight. The God who is infinitely happy and full in himself, who does not need us, gives himself to us to enjoy, to rest in, to be satisfied with. His goodness to us 
is never exhausted by our sin. I don't know what many of your lives look like right now. I don't know how you felt when you came in this morning. But I can tell you this with the utmost confidence. No matter how far your feet have slipped, your song can end like Asaph's. The God who gave us life in the beginning, and when we turned away from him, gave us life again in Jesus. This God invites you now, for the first time or for the one millionth time, to come near, to come and drink from his river of delights without cost and without limit. Knowing this, we can gladly say with Asaph, our friend, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that you are the father and the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son who sees us from a long way off and runs to embrace us, to adorn us with your own life, with your own status symbols of being right with you, with your own ring, you, and you slaughter the fattened calf for us. You throw a celebration for one sinner who comes back to you. We praise you for your welcoming and generous heart, and we pray, Lord, that you would bind our hearts to your goodness, you would keep us in your fold, but when we wander, we pray that you would welcome us back, just like you welcomed Asaph. In your son's name, amen.